0: This Halloween week on Pop Culture Confidential, writer Alicia Lutz joins me to dissect some of the scary new horror films and TV shows. Plus, we revisit a powerful interview from earlier this summer. Arkansas native and son of a pastor, Garrett Conley, shares his story of surviving gay conversion therapy. His book, Boy Erased, is about to hit the big screens in a movie adaptation starring Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hey guys, this is Christina Ehrling Biro. Welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential. So, this week I wanted to revisit my interview with gay conversion therapy survivor Garrett Conley. He shared his important story with me here earlier this summer. Now, the film version of his book Boy Erased is premiering stateside this week, in other countries this winter, and you can catch it at the Stockholm Film Festival now in November. But first, it's that time of year again for scary spooks and good horror stories, and wow, there seems to be some good stuff out there. Joining me to check out all the Halloween goodies this year is critic and writer Alicia Lutz. Happy Halloween, Alicia! Thank you very much. To you as well. Thank you for joining me. So it seems like horror is having a particularly interesting moment the past few years. There's some great films with underlying themes of race and family trauma, like Get Out, A Quiet Place, Hereditary, for example. What, what do you see in these? Is there any particular themes that you see really befit the zeitgeist for horror?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, it's really, I think it's really cool. Um, This year, I think in particular, we have seen such a boon of horror stories that really kind of dig into things um, that are happening to us socially. You know, I think that thanks to the success of something like Get Out, I think a lot of people started to take horror a bit more seriously. And you get incredibly thrilling, gripping movies like *A Quiet Place*, like *Hereditary*, *The Nun*, *Suspiria*. I mean, and then you have you know the, even the the less sort of like socially conscious but still very deeply imbued um, stories like *Slenderman* and *The First Purge*. And 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 you can even look at a movie like *Annihilation*. In in certain oh, right. ways, as a horror film, um, and so it really runs the gamut in terms of you know what's happening ecologically what's happening with us as far as you know interpersonal relationships and the heated dynamic between men and women in 2018 you know you really kind of get to see all of that with all of these movies and i think that it's really really awesome to see a genre that is very often associated with you know sort of silly campish extreme gore just for gore's sake being used as this allegory for the time that we're in right now you know 2018 has not been the chillest year on history books
0: no things are so bad that we need some horror to go to sort of dig into it right yes the catharsis of of seeing that you know you, you think about
1: something you know like this year when you know our the president of the united states won't shut up and every you know the discourse seems to be Drowning us all whole to have a movie like The Quiet Place where nothing can be said. You know, the, the juxtaposition of those things. Right. Interesting. I think are so fascinating and I think speak volumes in many ways to the sort of desperation that a lot of us feel right now.
0: One of the big movies coming out this, the, you know, this season, Halloween is of course Halloween, which is not really a remake, I guess. It's sort of a continuation. With the Jamie Lee Curtis is in it, and it's going like gangbusters.
1: Everyone in my family like turns into a nutcase this time of year. Yeah, I mean, your grandmother is Laurie Strode. She was almost murdered.
2: Wasn't it her brother who murdered all those babysitters? No
1: it was not her brother that's something that people made up do you know that i pray every night that he would escape
3: the bail did you do that for him?
1: so i can kill him
0: what do you think of that movie that really takes up sort of the traumatized woman
1: it's incredible to see women's trauma and pain and how we deal with it um, sort of being given this the service of this story you know it's it's very easy to go into historical woman territory let's say that Um, (laughs) especially when you don't have somebody who really understands the pain and the drive and the compulsion that post-traumatic stress disorder can bring upon people. Um, you know, as somebody who does suffer from PTSD, I really relate to you that sort of vigilance that you see in Laurie Strode, this constant low-grade anxiety and the constant planning for the what if or the hypothetical that
0: seems absolutely crazy impossible to the point that it alienates you from the rest of your family. Because the story here is that Laurie Strode who was um, Jamie Lee Curtis who was the original traumatized by Mike Myers character she's a grandmother now she's a mother and he of course gets out of prison and she's again terrorized and traumatized and has been living with this all her life.
1: Yes absolutely and and you see that in Jamie Lee's performance in a way that is just so formidable and subverts this I don't know if it's an idea but I think that there can be a feeling of helplessness, of weakness, of, of burden on society for these feelings that you have. And to see her be able to not only survive that, but save her family and kick ass because of that. Right, right. It's a nice reclamation of, of this idea of the scorned, burned, you know, traumatized vinyl girl.
0: One of the things that unfortunately did happen around this movie is that the director—is he the director and or producer— from Bloomhouse.
1: Oh, Jason Blum. Jason yeah, Blum. He's a uh, producer,
0: right? He made a comment regarding that there wasn't a female director on this movie that really feels like it should have had a female director. Well, that they looked for female directors, but there are no female directors who want to do horror, which of course caused an uproar. Um, um, <laughs> and he did apologize, I have to say, and said that he, you know, he made a mistake in saying this. But why is it still this? I mean, there are tons of women who want to do horror. I mean, one of my favorite movies of the past few years, Babadook, was directed by a woman who was absolutely amazing about a single mom, (laughs) and this still is out there, right?
1: Yeah, it's just lazy, easy rhetoric. You know, it's it's something that I see tossed around from people that are out of touch, that aren't on the ground in the day-to-day, but it's so wild to me to have it come from Jason Blump because, like... I'm sorry, Jennifer Kent, Karen Kusama, where are you? Like, and what point, like, you are the the king of horror, arguably, right mm-hmm. now. And to just say something so flippantly just feels like it's somebody regurgitating a line that I think a lot of people that don't want to do the work use. Um, and it's minimal work, too. You can go online. Vulture has a list of every, basically every female director that's working now, and it's like... Hundreds long, you know, it is just something I think people who don't want to, you know, really mess with the status quo say because it's just easy to Well, they just it's didn't just look. I
0: mean, yeah. they just yes. took the first <laughs> one. <roll. laughs> I mean, right. Well, anyway, again, he did apologize and hopefully it'll do better. But another um, man who but who did direct a female centric new movie that's also going really well in the box office is uh, Luca Guadagnino, (laughs) um, who directed the new version of Suspiria of the movie about the coven of witches. And this has gone from like being an art movie to doing an incredible weekend, right? Yeah, it's
1: crazy. You know, uh, I have personally, I've yet to see Suspiria. I'm really excited, but also very anxious about it because I've heard that there's some very intense scenes where people who aren't usually like, I had a physical reaction to this, are like, I had a physical reaction to this. Like I was going to throw up. Oh, Um, really? I haven't
0: seen it either. Yes, but
1: I've also heard that it's actually better than the original because it has sort of this very feminine heart at the center of it and yes you know Luca is a man and he's telling this female story while it would be nice to see what a story like Suspiria would look like on in under the guise of a woman like Luca is incredible and he has such an eye and he's insanely passionate about this story this is a movie that he has loved for a long time and he was also very collaborative um, with the women mm-hmm. at the center of the film you know that he sort of spoken about that uh, quite a bit So I think it's really cool to see a film like Suspiria, which is just so off the walls, so left and center, so not the film you would expect the person who made Call Me By Your Name to follow that movie up with. But I think that's what makes it so exciting.
0: All right, but do you think there's also a rise in terms of witches on in horror films? Because we have my favorite of the week, new version, the TV show of uh, Sabrina, the teenage witch, was also a, a remake. What's the thing with witches?
1: Oh gosh, what isn't there about <laughs> witches to love <laughs> and relate to in 2018? You know, uh, it's like Maxine Waters says, we're all reclaiming our time right now, and I think. One of the most powerful ways to do that in storytelling is through the the allegory of witches, you know, of, of women having this secret power that men are fearful of, being able to control things and deal with life and death in a way that maybe men don't necessarily understand because we have this ability to create life and all of these things within us.
0: In the town of Greendale, where it always feels like Halloween... <laughs> there lived a girl who was half witch, oh,
3: man.
0: half mortal, who, on her 16th birthday, would have to choose between two worlds, the witch world of her family and the human world of her friends.
1: Happy birthday, sweet 16. And that girl is me. I think women just want to feel like they can behave badly and win the day, same way that men get to do yeah. in a lot of storytelling and being a witch is it's scary it gives you power that you know other people doesn't don't necessarily get to have it subverts this very dark devious idea of something that's bad that actually empowers people and so I think that's what makes it really exciting especially right now because a lot of people feel like they don't have power right, right. And a lot of people feel like they can't change and they can't stand up to the bullies and they can't Topple the patriarchy, but when you're a witch, you sure as shit can.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and so I can't let you go before asking you about Netflix mega hit, The Haunting of Hill House, that even Stephen King has said is a masterpiece. Now, why has that resonated so much? Gosh, you know, it is. I think a lot of it is
1: the family trauma aspect we're all dealing with that, especially in the States right now. You know, a lot of families are sort of torn apart in the last two years, be it, you know, because of politically what's happening or just, you know, socially what's what's happening in the world. Looking at trauma and family relationships and how we affect one another through the guise of this, you know, haunted house is really, really affecting because I think that a lot of this stuff you know it does it creeps up on you it's unexpected it pops up out of nowhere it it haunts you I think all of these things are are wildly relevant to the themes that are going on and the shows are so so incredibly well done that you know it's it's gripping it's spooky it's but it's also a beautiful story and I think that it does it fires on all the cylinders that you want good horror to fire on.
0: Now I want you two to get good rest. What if I have a bad dream? Oh, I'm sure we can handle any dream you have.
3: What if I dream that you sent us away into the dark and we get hurt? Really
0: hurt. <laughs> and what if I'm so sad and scared of the dark out there that I put poison in me? For years and years, until my blood turns
3: into poison
1: and my heart breaks right in half and I can't feel anything
0: happy. (gasps) I can't stand it anymore. Right. Netflix having a pretty good season with these two in the horror. Yeah, and they really are. <laughs> yeah. Alicia, thank you so much for this again. And um, I hope we would speak again very soon. Oh,
1: me too. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much, Alicia Lutz. Now for my conversation with Garrett Conley, author of the memoir Boy Erased. Conley grew up in the U.S. Bible Belt, the son of a Baptist pastor. After being outed to his parents, they gave him an ultimatum, go to gay conversion therapy or lose your family, community, and school forever. The memoir has now been adapted into a movie starring Lucas Hedges playing Garrett, Nicole Kidman, and Russell Crowe as his parents, and directed by actor Joel Edgerton.
3: Jared, I want you to do well. I want you to have a great life. I love you, but we cannot see a way that you can live under this roof if you're going to fundamentally go against the grain of our beliefs. Jared,
2: tell me the truth, that's all. I think about men.
3: I don't know why, and I'm so sorry your parents signed you up for a
2: program to fix you but Jared you are a perfectly normal very healthy teenage boy
0: they're gonna do things for you now this is a very open and long talk and it includes some difficult and personal themes We talk about understanding his background, how his religious upbringing led to him being so conflicted about his sexuality, confused and lonely. A horrifying rape led to his outing to his parents, and then his terrible experiences at gay ex-therapy. And even though his parents gave him that ultimatum, go to gay conversion therapy or pretty much lose everything, how he still loves them, still tries to understand. And this led us to talking about how can we ever talk to each other in this very, very divisive age. How have Garrett's experiences informed him about communicating with fundamentalists, about dealing with hate? Garrett Conley, thank you so much for joining me. Can you start by telling me about the community that you grew up in?
2: So I'm uh, from a very small town in Arkansas, and actually the population there when I was growing up was 100 people. So. Um, You know, my dad was kind of the central figure in the town. And the one, uh, you know, the other place of business was like a church that we all went to. Uh, And so it was a very insulated community. My father was this sort of um, all American, you know, quarterback who then he ran, he married my mother when she was 16. And he took over this cotton gin, which I don't know if your listeners know what a cotton gin but it's basically like a factory that cleans cotton so that it can then be manufactured into clothing um and so it's really rough work it's very intense and there was there was just like a a sort of hard scrabble intensity to the town and um and and in that environment often i'm not you know i don't want to use too many stereotypes but often um, there are certain gender roles that are very solid. um you know, men act this way, women act this way um, and and there's no deviation from that so so basically, you know when I was growing up and I started to realize that I was gay, um, you know i would I sort of attuned myself to the environment and tried to make sure that none of my mannerisms were, were too effeminate or or my voice didn't get too excited you know at certain times um, and I find that to be something that happens for a lot of queer kids across the country um, and and in the whole world I mean I've taught in Bulgaria for three years and Ukraine for three years and I had queer students who you know said the same thing and and that's where I kind of got that idea from
0: Tell me about the church that you grew up in
2: well you know, it's it's difficult to describe the church accurately when when people haven't been in the church like that because it is just such a wonderful place. Many times, you know, like I went there three times a week. It was like an extended family, and and people really helped each other. You know, if someone was sick, we all went to the hospital. If someone uh, if someone's family member died, we had you know we all made food for them. We had these giant you know butter slathered casseroles, and so that was. That was the really nice part of church, but the sort of the fundamentalist teachings of the church were something that I found uncomfortable from a pretty young age because I really liked to read a lot and I you know good literature is all about nuance and particularity and character and people making mistakes and learning from them. And the the church was just sort of uh you know took some hard stances about people's Decisions, you know, if you had an abortion, then you were pretty much evil. Um, if you if you were gay and living an openly gay lifestyle, uh, you you know you might be invited back into the fold of the church, but you wouldn't necessarily be seen the same way. And I I felt pretty early on that that was that was um, hypocritical.
0: Mm-hmm. You understood that. Yeah,
2: I, I think <laughs> I think children understand that pretty early on until they're taught to not trust themselves, you know?
0: I've heard you say, which I thought was very interesting and speaks a little bit about how literal the church was, that you started reading about Darwin in college first, which means that they must have had a pretty literal view of the Bible.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, Adam and Eve were two people who, you know, basically founded all of the human race Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a state to them you know that that was very real and Noah Noah put every animal on the ark and saved all the animals that those were not seen as metaphors um, and so I grew up I grew up knowing that that didn't make sense but also thinking you know faith requires a lot out of people and 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 Jesus says take up the cross and follow me it's going to be difficult on this path and so I thought that was another difficulty Um my high school, I mean, it's hard for people to believe this, but my high school was a public school. And they, the some of the teachers individually made choices not to teach Darwin, mm-hmm. not to teach science. And they would say, you know, if you want, that's not going to be on the test. So if you want, you can read it when you're alone at home. And I remember, you know, how are you going to go when you're a young kid go off and read Darwin and understand all the implications of Darwin by yourself. You know, like it's much easier to read the creation story and get that whole thing than to understand all of the like nuances of actual Darwinian thought. Right. So.
0: And your father also became a pastor at your church, right? Yeah. Did that change the dynamic in your family even more? Or?
2: Oh, to, to an insane degree. I mean, my dad had always, you know, taken us to church, and he was very religious. And even at the cotton gin, and later when he owned a Ford dealership, he would he would have the the workers do like a Bible study every morning, and it was it was just sort of what they did. So that part was not surprising. What was surprising was the zeal that overtook him right after he decided to become a preacher. I mean, my mom and I were sitting in the pew at at Sunday church. Just like, okay, well, this is going to pass right <laughs> you know this is this is just something he wants to do, and that's fine. We'll let him do it, but there it was sort of like this blanket sort of came over our whole household, and we were told you know he wasn't he wasn't violent or cruel or anything, but it was very much like we would go see a film in the theater together, and unless that film had absolutely no curse words in it. Mm-hmm. And no, no, you know, it could have violence because for some reason Americans don't recognize violence. But if it has like a curse word or sex, then then you couldn't, you know, deal with it. And it, and so he would walk out of the movie theater and he would y'all should walk out with me. And my mom and I would be like, no, we paid money to go see this. So we're not going to walk out right now.
0: Yeah, what was your mother's sort of role in your family?
2: Uh, my mom has always been this sort of intercessor for, you know, every conflict that could occur between me and dad. Um, she She's one, you know, she's classic Southern Belle mom. She's going to make everything run smoothly. She's going to throw a big party. If she's going to throw the party, she's going to make sure every single person at that table is comfortable, you know. Um, to the point of like, you're almost annoyed after a while. You're like, I'm actually okay sitting here with my sweet tea. Um, but she, she's wonderful. And she's always been, you know, for a little background on her, she's always been a a pretty, I guess, beloved person. Like she, she grew up in that small town and her family was pretty wealthy. And so, a lot of people really liked to see like what she was going to wear and what she was going to like drive, and she sort of got used to doing that. And so when my dad took us on this adventure of being a preacher instead of uh, you know a moneymaker, and we, we sort of lost a lot of the money that we had, um, my parents actually went bankrupt um, not too long ago. And it was a huge change in her life. And it was a huge change in all of our lives. And, you know, she always says I was never meant to be a preacher's wife. I didn't marry a preacher. Like, (laughs) I married a man who was going to make money and who was going to do this, you know, stuff for us. But they love each other so much. And she loves me that when all the conflicts occurred in my, you know, my father learning about my sexuality and sending me to conversion therapy, my mom just became this, like, really rigid version of herself which was I'm going to make sure both of you are happy and when one person is not you know willing to budge or move or think which my father was at that time it it makes the person who's trying to make both sides work just ineffectual you know like, <laughs> yeah she just becomes a frustrating yeah.
0: person <laughs> When you, you, know, you knew that you were gay, was it ever an option to talk to them about that? How, how did you feel about that?
2: That was never an option. I mean, it's not, that, it's not that I thought they would immediately ship me off to conversion therapy because I didn't even know what that was until it became an option. Um, it was just that it was going to be so embarrassing for our family and it was going to be so impossible to move forward with no answers. You know, there. I knew what the church's answers would be. It would be like, you know, I didn't know the term conversion therapy, but I knew it would be pray the gay away, you know, do whatever you have to do to make it work. And then also I felt if that secret got out. If I'm going to live a quote unquote normal life, you know, heterosexual life, then I can't have that rumor going around because I do eventually have to marry someone and I don't want, that woman being like, okay, well, you know, I know this is true. I just, I thought like, okay, it's going to make it even more impossible to be a normal person if I let this <laughs> secret out.
0: That must've been so incredibly scary and lonely that time.
2: Yeah, it was incredibly lonely. And I, I mean, it was definitely the closest I've ever come to suicide and there were, there was a lot of ideation at the time. And I just I was also a fat kid so you know you add that on to everything and you're already awkward and and like i I moved so our family moved from the cotton gin area where we lived to um to another town it was still small but it was a little bit bigger and um that was in ninth grade so you know moving in ninth grade you're a fat (laughs) kid you're like (laughs) you're secretly gay and you don't have any friends, and you're already awkward. It just It's not good. I would hide in the bathroom during lunch breaks and do the thing where you like actually stand or, or crouch on the stall on the toilet.
0: So they won't see your feet.
2: Yeah, because I was just so embarrassed to like have to try to find a seat in the lunchroom. I, you know, nothing else that has ever happened to me. This is not hyperbolic. There's been a lot of crazy stuff in my life, but... Nothing is as bad as crouching in that bathroom. Like, I, I'm, i you know, every time I have a bad day, I'm like, well, I'm not crouching in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> you know?
0: that, that must have been so lonely. I can't even imagine.
2: And you're also, you know, you think people do that. They're not self-aware. But I was just like, wow, I look stupid, you know.
0: <laughs> well. Reading your book, I know you were outed, and it was a terrible experience. Um, are you okay talking about it or telling yeah. me what happened? Um, yeah,
2: I, I know it's intense. i like sometimes people ask me not to talk about it because it's so triggering, and you know how like in some universities, people are very uh, averse to talking about things like that, which I actually think is a bad choice. I think you should go ahead and talk about rape culture and what happens, but um. You know, I was outed by, and I can't give all the information legally because they've, you know, they've tied my hands in terms of what I can say about this person. But he was somebody that I knew pretty well. And, um, and in college, uh, he one night raped me. Um, and right after he raped me, he told me that he had raped a 14-year-old boy in his youth group, which is a church, you know, youth group that he was in. And I just remember thinking, okay, well, um, if this is what gay sex is, then I don't want it because I don't want to rape a 14-year-old boy, and I don't want to be raped by this man. And um, it was very confusing. I mean, I say these words out loud, and I can hear how crazy it sounds that, like, I wouldn't know the difference between the two, but I was seriously not taught Anything about what gay sex would be, and if you looked it up online, it was just porn.
0: Mm. How would I go? I mean,
2: yeah, (laughs) I was, I was so nervous about typing those words in or having somebody find it in a search engine. We didn't all have, you know, these little phones glued to our hands all the time where we could do that and sneak it. And it was like a family computer, so anyone could find it. And I just remember thinking, well, okay. Uh, I don't want this, so I'll do just about anything to make sure that this doesn't happen again mm-hmm. and And we've been told <laughs> since we were kids that that queer people were pedophiles, that they were perverts, you know that was like something you always heard and um and that followed me you know it's it's followed me into a lot of my teaching career where I'm like. I'm like really worried about what people think in terms of like oh what if I put a hand on this kid's shoulder are they gonna think that I'm a pervert etc. I mean it's just a really nefarious idea. Mm-hmm. So when I was outed, uh, basically like so this this guy raped me. He told me he read a 14 year old boy. I freaked out about the 14 year old boy thing, and I uh, immediately told my friends Charles and Dominique who were were close to me in college. And they informed their mother, who then called the man who raped me and yelled at him. And she was like, how could you do that to a 14-year-old kid? They didn't know about my rape. And uh-huh. he, he and a friend of mine went through all of my belongings and, like, made fun of me that whole night. And they found, like, I guess things that proved that I was gay or something. I don't know. And, um, and they called my mom and said, oh, your son is openly gay at college, and uh, you need to pick him up right now because he's in some guy's room or something. Mm-hmm. You know, they sent a messenger back to me, and they say, and, and the person says, well, your mom's coming to get you, and you're not ever going to go back to college again. She's going to take you out, and she's not going to pay for anything. And I was just sitting there with Charles and Dominique, like, sobbing and being like, my life is over now because the only time I've ever been kind of happy is at this college.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And it was, you know, it was first semester. So she's just going to take you out for good. And um, And
0: how did your mother react? I mean, the news for her was both that you had, you were gay, but that you'd also been raped. Maybe she she she, didn't know that part.
2: She didn't get that info now because he was never going to tell that Mm -hmm. he he was using my outing gotcha. as a way to cover up his stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, and I wasn't about to tell her anything because mm-hmm. I didn't know that that was rape. I thought it was just like a punishment or like I'd somehow asked for it. And you know, men in in this country don't, you know, like when they talk about their own rape experience, it's very hard. Like they get labeled in certain ways, um, and and they. You know, it's just—it's hard for masculinity to survive rape in many ways. Um, And so I I had all that stuff going through me, and so I didn't tell her. But she she showed up with a friend because she was so terrified of what she was going to encounter there. And uh, her friend stayed silent the whole time. And when my mom came to get me, she was just like, is it true? And I totally lied, and I was like, no, I'm not gay at all. He's just trying to cover this up. And I told her that he raped a 14 year old boy but I didn't tell her anything about my rape mm-hmm. so when I came home uh, you know she was like I think you should talk to your dad because we've been talking you know in the in the interim before I came here and uh, and dad took me into the bedroom and I'm really not good at lying you know I, I was lying to my mom was really hard but whenever dad was like do you swear to God that you're not?" gay and I was like Ugh, I can't do that because mm-hmm. you know <laughs> I'd be like struck by lightning or something mm-hmm. um, and so that's when he said well um, mm-hmm. you know either you do what we say or you won't see us again and and you won't be able to, to go back to college and so I agreed to do whatever they said you know it's like well I don't know if I believe it'll work but you know, if it keeps my family and it keeps college, I mean, it lets me talk to my mom still, then I'll do it.
0: People qu- may ask sort of, why did you say yes to going to gay conversion theory? But I think that's pretty understandable. But was there any part of you that thought, well, maybe, I mean, this, there is something wrong with me? This yeah. Is-
2: I mean, I think that I, I definitely thought there was something wrong with me at mm-hmm. that point. But I... I don't know if I thought it would totally work. It was sort of like the church had always suggested things that I had disagreed with, but generally you just don't go against the church. Like you, you know, I, it was, it would have been an apocalypse for me if I lost the church and I lost God and I lost my parents and I lost college. You know, there was like no, what was I going to do? Just run off to New York with no money? And like <laughs> end up in clubs. I mean, people have done it, and it's worked for some of them, and many of them it has not worked for. And a lot of people don't have the advantage of running off somewhere. And I think I did.
0: Your pa- you guys love each other. Your family. I
2: mean, it's no. I always say, like, like aside from this one absolutely terrible, unforgivable moment that my dad had with me, um, he was always it's just a wonderful father. And he has been, you know, since that period in some ways, a a good father. And so I just, I think that there was always love there. And each individual experience is going to be different. You know, some people, they get that ultimatum and they're like, well, I'm never going to talk to you again. And, and, you know, thankfully some people have the energy and the ability to do that when they need to. But I, I was just like, I love these people. They're the, you know, I've always been in a, a very quiet, very, um, you know, I don't like crowds. I, I'm i very much an introvert. And my parents were these, I'm an only child, so my parents were my confidants. You know, they were the ones that I turned to when anything was going on. And I, I've always been like an older person in that way. Like the church is full of old people. <laughs> and. And you just like learn how to talk to them, and you love being friends with them because they are wise in a lot of ways. They've seen a lot, and um, <laughs> and so I just I, I didn't have like a peer group that I could just turn to and be like, well, fuck them, you know. <laughs>
0: um, so you're off. Um, they take you, you to to a place called Love and Action, which is yeah. um in action. Action. love in action Just, sorry even yeah. even more yeah. telling I know <laughs> um can tell me about that and 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 what uh you actually had to a- apply for this oh uh, yeah
2: it was harder than getting into college actually Oh really? <laughs> there's like so I'll tell you like the the logistics of it and I'll tell you the why of it because it's very complicated basically like my parents called Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, and the pastor there said, "Hey, you know, we got these brochures for a place called Love and Action. This can help cure your kid." And um, and so we got these brochures in the mail, and my mom said, "Here's the application." I look at it, and it's like, you know, 15 pages of an application, which you know, my college application wasn't even that long. And um, and it's it's you know, it says, "Have you ever done any of the following?" And it's like Dungeons and Dragons and, like, certain video games. Like, basically, like, anything that could ever be fun or interesting was on that list. And what's so funny, too, is that they put yoga on that list. Like, like what? Anyway, (laughs) so that was, like, my first alarm bell where I was like, oh, my God, these people are crackpots. But, okay, I guess I'll fill this out and do it. And, you know, it's a joke at first. But then as you keep going through the application, it's like, what was your first um, sexual experience? And I like had to write an essay about it. And I'm like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to tell the truth there, but I had to sit there and like make up this sort of fake sexual experience. And then, but I'm thinking the whole time like, oh god, I'm already lying on the application. And then, um, and then it, it asks, you know, such personal questions that as a young you know, nineteen, 18, 19 year old kid, you're like, you've never been asked those questions before. And it, it gets very real very quickly. Um, and, and it was very invasive and we had to have like three letters of recommendation, which is hilarious. I had to have like recommendation from pastors and they had to know, like they had to have known me for more than four years or something like that. I mean, it was all very specific, and the but why. But what the
0: recommendations of, are like? He's really gay, or I
2: mean. No, they're like he's a good Christian for uh-huh. this amount of time, and his family is struggling through this. So basically, it makes more sense if I tell you the why now. Mm-hmm. Like I've done so much research on on Love and Action and and how they've done all this stuff, and actually, we have a really cool podcast that'll be coming out um, around the time of the movie. But um, it's like they wanted to vet everyone who went through those doors because they didn't want somebody who could come out of those doors and do an expose. Right. Like like I did, (laughs) (laughs) but they had no idea, you know, like they, (laughs) they had no idea that I would later turn out to be a writer or that I wanted to be one. I mean, they, they took away my like journaling whenever I was there, so so they were trying to make sure that there was no way that someone could enter that wasn't already brainwashed.
0: Mm-hmm. Like uh, a cult, right?
2: Yeah. They, they, I have done research with um, the Managing Society and, and a law firm that works with them, and that law firm confirmed for me that it was a cult,
0: mm-hmm.
2: like classic cult.
0: <laughs> so what did the therapy look like?
2: Hmm. It took many different forms. I mean, before I, I got there, conversion therapy often took much more sinister um, pathways. Like, the, it's known for, at one point, you know, people used lobotomies and electroshock therapy and and this thing called touch therapy where you would sit in a counselor's lap and they would just, like, hold you because you didn't get enough male touch when you were younger. I mean, that's I didn't get any of that. What I got was a sort of really messed up arts and craft (laughs) set of (laughs) lessons um that were heavy on psychological abuse um i you know we had like a three hour what they called a rap session which in therapy terms means like a group of people who sit around and like support each other and talk about their problems um and we were seated in the mornings with people who were dealing with bestiality pedophilia uh you know, marriage issues, uh, you, you, know, anyone on the LGBT spectrum was there. We were all treated the same way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're treated as though we have an addiction to something. And, and I look back at that and I'm like, oh my God, you know, people who were trans were being told they had an addiction to being trans. I mean, that seems even more insane in some ways than being told you have an addiction to being gay. Um, But um, we were all grouped together and we were told, uh, you know, someone would say what they felt or what had happened the night before or what they felt, you know, in terms of suicide. And we would listen to it. And then the, the leader of the group, John Smith at the time, he would say, you know, well, you have to turn to the Bible. You have to turn to the Lord. You have to get rid of these thoughts and, and extricate them from yourself. And then we would all say, we love you in the person's name. And that would go on for a while. And then we would all split off into our separate groups. I was part of a youth group um, called The Refuge. And we we were there for a trial session to determine how long we would stay there. Mm-hmm. So usually people stayed three months, a year, two years. I mean, for many of these people, it became their life. As you know, you know, cults do, mm-hmm. um, and and it's it's a big scheme basically. Like you're told within the first two weeks, there's no real assessment that goes on. Like they're actually just always going to say to you, "You need more time here, no matter what."
0: So the so-called therapists had they actually gone through it themselves, sort of? Yeah, yeah.
2: They were they were very much drinking the Kool Aid by that time. They were they were former clients.
0: And how did you yeah. get out of this? I mean, did you?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, uh, as the days went on, my mom started to see this change in me. I mean, we did these, I call them arts and crafts to, like, try to make it funnier, but it was actually really disturbing. We we did things like we'd make a family tree, and we had to put these, these things called sin symbols next to their names. And those were basically like anything that we believed that people had done in our family um, that was bad or not part of the fundamentalist Christianity that we grew up in. We had to put that next to their name. So, like, if someone had an abortion, you put an A B next to their name. And mm-hmm. someone had gambled, you put like a you put like a dollar sign next to their name. You know, things like that. And so it was, and that was to tell us, like, oh, that's why you're homosexual which is so strange. Um, and and so my mom started to see that I was like wasting away and becoming an unhappier version of myself. And I think, you know, at a certain point, she says to me later, yeah, I felt like I was the best mother in the world because I decided to do this and, and your father's not here. <laughs> but I also felt like I might be the worst mother in the world because I can see, you know, that you're wasting away every day. And um, so she, I mean, I, I attribute my escape to my mother because she let me know that I wasn't looking normal anymore, like I wasn't acting like myself. And then I was in this therapy session that was so intense. And, um, you know, it was like in an auditorium, there was a group of people and they made me sit across from an empty chair and it was part of an exercise called the lie chair. And I had to imagine my father sitting in the chair and I had to yell at the chair and say, like, I hate you, father, like blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, this is the stupidest thing in the world. First of all, I don't hate my dad. Like, you're not even listening to me. And they're like, well, you need to take the exercise seriously. You haven't been taking it seriously from the minute you got here. And, you know, knowing what I know now, that was the turn where they were going to, like, try to keep me there for many months. But I was just like, I don't hate my father. Don't tell me what to do or what to think anymore, you know, and I, I, I didn't yell or anything. I just stood up for myself for the first time ever in that camp. And the counselors were like yelling at me and saying, you know, you need to get mad. And I just was like, I, I have to go. Like, this is, this is ridiculous because in my brain I was thinking what, what Christians use hatred as a tool to like cure this. You know, if, if it's all about compassion in the Bible, why are we being told to hate people? Um, and so I just stormed out and they followed me and I, I went to go get all my belongings cause they take all your belongings when you come in. And the person at the desk said, well, no, we can't give that to you. Um, your therapy session's not over. And I said, it's an emergency. Give me my phone. So they gave it to me and I called my mom and she picked me up. They ran to the side of the car and they were like, oh, he needs more therapy. You know, he's just, <laughs> it's just the beginning of all blah. blah, blah. And my mom, you know, very wisely, um, she was like, I don't know why I never asked this, uh, but what are your qualifications? And the guy was like, the guy was like, well, uh, I attended Alcoholics Anonymous and I was like, what, how is this, oh my God. <laughs> you know, and, uh, we drove off. I mean, it's, it's much more dramatic than that. And you'll see it in the film and stuff, but you know, we drove off and mom was just like, are you going to kill yourself? Is this, is this what's going to happen? Like, and I said, yes. And I don't know, you know, what I really thought. I, I think maybe I was like, this is going to be the answer that gets us home but also I had had suicidal ideation. So I, you know, to this day I find it very, very difficult to describe what my actual emotions are because of all the jargon that was placed in my head at love and action. You know, like you, you were just taught not to trust what you actually feel. So I, my barometer for how I feel is always incredibly, you know, mixed up. Um, mm-hmm. And that's one of the lasting effects of, of something like that, which, you know, there are many. But um, we drove away and, and mom was just like, well, I'll I'll handle your dad. <laughs> Figure it out. Because um, what and was his heard...
0: reaction? Because obviously, I mean, you're still you're still gay. I mean, okay.
2: spoiler.
0: <laughs> spoiler
2: Spoiler. alert. <laughs> uh,
0: but I mean, when you came home and I mean, what did what was his first reaction?
2: Well, I mean he was basically like Are you still like are you cured? And I was like, No, didn't work, Dad. Surprise. And he he's very I mean, he's an expert in denial, so am I. And so we, we were just like, Okay, let's not talk about that because there was obviously my mom was like my mom has pulled this a few times, but it was pretty clear, she was like, You will not have a wife if you send him back there. You will not have son, if you sent him back there. So don't send him back there. Um, and, and my dad is big on family, and of course he loves us, and I think he was just like, let's table that for right now. Because, <laughs> um, I, you know, he didn't, none of them knew at that time that I I was reeling from a rape, you know. I was literally, like, within months of being raped, I'm sent to this place. And so all of it in my head is just, like, crazy um they didn't know how close to suicide it was i didn't tell anyone so they didn't know that they just basically almost lost their kid you know they. it was it was something that was church sanctioned and so they trusted it and that's that is that kind of brainwashing is exactly what's going on in the country not to transition to that too soon but people not questioning the leaders Who are just saying the craziest stuff. (laughs) And you're like, they're like, well, hey, let's send them to the psychological torture camp. I'm sure it'll work. You know, that no one questioned it. And my mom will be the first person to say, like, she feels so much guilt about not questioning it. And she feels so much, you know, terror at what might have happened. But she had no idea. And I think people find that difficult to believe because they don't live in these isolated communities. And the church is what the church is what makes you survive. It is actually a survival tool in many of these places. My dad's mission right now in Mountain Home, Arkansas. I mean, more than half of the church members have been in some really dire situations or are in them right now. You know, in terms of healthcare access, in terms of drug usage in terms of health, you know, in general. Like, it is not fun to go to that church, you know, when people start talking about what their problems are. But, Uh, you know, my dad does this real service, and he has a soup kitchen for people who are homeless, you know, and it's a very small town, but there are a lot of homeless people. And so I think that when you've got an institution that is so good at something, like really providing for people – you know, it's not hypocritical in that way. But then they tell you, those people who've like fed you, they tell you this is how you do it. You don't ask questions.
0: But your mother did feel that this was wrong. This was not right for you and that you were slowly dying.
2: Yeah, she felt it in her bones, you know, like yeah. it was something else. You
0: know? But I want to get back to both your dad and to, to the situation today. But I want to ask what your relationship is to, to religion, to God. Yeah, messy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I still pray pretty regularly. I don't know who I'm praying to <laughs> anymore, but it's it's nice, you know, I find it to be a really helpful way to organize my thoughts to be like, okay, what am I thankful for? I don't pray for anything to happen or for goodness to occur in my life, you know, like, cause I don't believe you can have control over that. But I do pray you know, in in gratitude, and um, I've been to churches. You know, since conversion therapy, I tried a lot of churches out, like to try to figure out. Okay, I've gotta, I got to I got to stay in this world, but every time I would go, it just sort of felt like my skin was on fire. Not because I'm actually demonic, but just because it felt. You're
0: not. It, We've established yeah, this. <laughs> turns
2: out, I don't think so. Um, but it just it it felt so uncomfortable like any kind of dogma um and i you know i'm sympathetic towards churches especially the ones that reach out to the lgbtq community because i'm like that is that is actually the lord's work because you are making sure that those kids are safe in their communities and i think that's brilliant and you know some of my favorite people are christians and and um muslims you know like there's a lot of different faiths that are wonderful um but I can't do it. I can't touch it. It, it makes me so uncomfortable.
0: But it must be a, a sadness because, I mean, you described beautifully at the beginning of our talk that with growing up. This was a, you know, you brought food to people, to your neighbors when they were sick. This helped you. This is an incredible family. Um, and, and in a way you lost that.
2: I did. I mean, I think the big, your tragedy there is not that I lost the church community, but that the community, you know, lost me actually. Like they, and I, I mean, I've had to reframe it that way because it's too tragic the other way. And I do, I do think that when you're non-inclusive, you lose some of your best members. Um, Cause if they had me on their side right now, I could be such a spokesperson for the church, you know, but I, I can't do it. And, um, but, but, I, I also, you know this is a bit cliche, and probably we all kind of believe this in our in our artistic fields. like community is found in so many different places, and I've found it here with my friends and I, and the same feelings that I had in church exist outside of church. So to me, you know, not to judge people who are rather dogmatic, but I think if you need that backbone to serve your goodness then there's something that's not very strong there you know like you should just want to help people and be like a kind person without the fear of hell to motivate you
0: are you welcome in your hometown church i mean after the book and the movie coming
2: (laughs) i don't know if i'm welcome do i show up yes yeah because i i'm stubborn just like my father um and people are really nice you know the south has like the whole I'm gonna be nice to you no matter what thing, <laughs> which I take advantage of. So I I still go to my dad's church, like pretty much every summer I'll I'll stop by. And I know that some of them are talking about me, and I know that it's um it's controversial when I do it, but I want to show up and be like, I am a human being with a body, like I'm here in this space with you. Like get over your labels, you know.
0: In terms of, I mean, we have the new administration in the U.S., we have, you know, things happening over here, and a lot of the talk is sort of about how do we actually approach someone that we just feel has the most bigoted, horrible way of looking at other human beings, um, be it how, you know, their view on homosexuality or, or, you know, immigration or whatever, and how do we... Do you have has this shown you any way how we can talk to each other? How would I talk to someone like that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that concerns me all the time because I live in two worlds. You know, I go I go back home to Arkansas and it feels like we're in a different century, and then I go to New York, and it, I mean, they're just such polar opposites. It's almost annoying. Like I'm like okay y'all are too woke here and you're not woke enough over here. Like, what? <laughs> let's, get, let's get everyone together. <laughs> um, and I mean, I don't know if there's such a thing as too woke, but you know.
0: Red state, blue state, all these analogies we have.
2: I know. What is it? Do we I'm,
0: talk? Do we show? What should we do?
2: Well, I, w- I don't want to be too prescriptive with people who are from like places that are absolutely terrible that they've escaped from. I would never say, go back home and like just <laughs> put your neck out there. I however I choose to do it. So I go home when I'm out in Mountain Home because they know who I am, you know, like pretty much wherever I go, they know that I'm that kid who wrote the the book. And they know that also because Russell Crowe randomly visited my father's church and like caused (laughs) quite a stir in that town. Um, and and so they're like I hope someone filmed that. Oh, my God, they didn't, but uh, I'm glad they didn't, actually. <laughs> um, but uh, so they all know me. So I, I can go into a business and somebody will say something like, oh, well, are you excited about the movie? And I'll say yes. And and then they'll say, well, I don't really agree with it, but I'm happy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'll be like, well, what what do you not agree with? And then I'll just go ahead and do that whole thing, like, in a public space with other people listening because – you know, I think that I think people find it very difficult to be complete jerks face to face. I think it's very difficult. Um, they still do it. I've still been called a fag in Mountain Home, Arkansas, several times when I'm out. Mm-hmm. But it's rare. Mm-hmm. Usually, the person retreats the minute that they say that because they're a coward, um, like Trump. But uh, you know, yes. I I feel like. There's just a uh, like for me, I know their language. I know how to speak in their vernacular, and so I can translate liberal thought into this sort of <laughs> conservative brain. And I I guess one of the things I find frustrating about the left at times is its inability to properly translate its messages. It just I've been talked down to so many times by advocates. You know, when I first started touring for my book, people would be like, Oh, well, you know, how could you ever even like write a compassionate way towards your parents? Like they did this horrible thing. And I'd be like, I'd be like, well, um, if you're actually, you know, woke, then you would realize that I can have my own reaction to things. And like, I'm an individual who, you know, you can't tell me how to love or hate. Um, but but I've just found like a, a lot of easy, you know, um, a lot of easy answers exist for the left that I think are, are not quite considered to the level they should be, and and I think that. Can you
0: tell me something? Because I I would probably have to say that I don't cannot understand that conservative thinking yeah. that, as that what you were describing as you know telling someone to yell that they hate their father. I mean, just I mean, and 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 please just trying to get yeah, yeah. someone to say they're not gay. I mean, no, I, I, I cannot get that into I, my head. Tell me, how do I meet them on a level that doesn't feel patronizing? What you know?
2: I would say is love in action is not at all a good representation of, of the community that I'm from. Like, Love my parents didn't even know what was going on at Love and Action. Had they known, I think they would have taken me out immediately. They just trusted the church. So Love and Action is kind of like an easy target. You can like you can look at them and be like, well, they're completely insane. Like just get rid of them. I think maybe what's important is to like and I'm not I'm not doing one of those things where I'm like, you just have to understand the rural voter and everything will be fine. I'm not doing that. And I actually don't think that the solution is to like you know, bend over backwards to make everyone who voted for Trump happy because I think that will result in a horrible country. But I do think that there's like, there are certain push button topics that are, that are going to explode on both sides when we say it. Like, how could you vote for Trump is like not a way to enter the conversation. The way to enter the conversation is to go like, why? yeah, like, what is it like for you on the ground every day? And because and what's happened is an ideologue has once again managed to take popular resentment and use it for his own advantages and and stoke hate in that way and 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 so I don't I don't think the answer is to even talk about Trump that much because I think he's a lot of noise I think he's actually like he's actually a constant distraction from what's actually happening in the country I think I mean not that he's not making a lot of things happen in the country that are terrible but I think that he's, he's a distraction. So I don't know how how to do it, but I mean, when I, when I go to my church, my dad's church, it's like, if you could hear the 20 minutes of people being like, I don't, I don't have access to healthcare. You're like, something weird is going on here. Like, like it wasn't working under Obama for them. And it's not working for them under Trump. And they are just angry and frustrated. And I think that, like, they're using Trump as a way to just express that anger. And I don't understand it fully. And I don't condone their, like, racist, horrible stuff. But it's like when you're there in that room, you can kind of get it on a guttural level. Like, they're just.
0: I understand, but. Do I really want to listen to someone saying homosexuality is wrong? Gay um, Immigrants, we have to poke it. I mean, that's like, when can I say no? (laughs) Well,
2: you know, I think I'm not a good spokesperson for that because I don't listen to someone who's not willing to listen to me. I just don't anymore. And my parents have always been willing to listen after that experience that we had. But I will never go into a place that's just going to be hateful. Like, I'm I'm not... Like if a hate group invites me to their, to their, you know, to be a keynote speaker, I'm not gonna do it.
0: Okay, so so that's where your line goes. I mean, depending on what the group's sort of.
2: Yeah. Well, I also is. I had this, com- I had this conversation with a great uh, activist, um, Thomas Page McBee, whose book just came out. Um, he wrote this book called Man Alive, and now he's writing Amateur. He's a trans activist. Um, and he, he, he always says he wants like a big audience, like a, a wide audience. Cause he doesn't want to just be thrown into the LGBT section. And I agree with him on that. Like, I'm totally on, I, I want to be mainstream, but, um, I I had the same conversation with him and I was like, well, how are you going to get somebody like my dad to read your book? You're not, he's not going to walk into a Barnes Noble and be like, oh, I'll read the trans book right now. You know? <laughs> Uh, he's just not gonna do it, and he was like well i don't i I can't talk to somebody that doesn't have the ability to listen, and so what we came to the conclusion of is like you sort of just maybe have to let those people rot in a corner <laughs> you know like they don't deserve to be part of a public conversation because they're insane like these are real nazis that we're dealing with a lot of them and they may not call themselves that but they are and it's like would you ever say in a history class oh if they if we just talked to the nazis it would have been okay you know like i feel like we're sort of learning as we go because we we haven't had this moment and but i do think that what's really important is that we all talk about like real on-the-ground issues and not about civility or, or like, you know, Trump's Twitter account or, you know, I think that those things, as important as they are for the, like, erosion of democratic principles, I think those are a discussion that people need to be having in the Senate and not on the ground when you, like, try to get people to vote. Because it's like they're just not going to vote based off of the same – identity politics that we've been using like it's just obviously that's the one thing we've learned
0: but tell me about your relationship with your father today as we speak
2: yeah so <laughs> it changes rapidly oh, yeah, every still. day um yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean it's just sort of like we'll talk around things quite a bit and and then then one day we'll talk it through and it'll be like you know i don't ever want to call you again but i probably will anyway and <laughs> it's very like people, a lot of people are like, Oh, you just have Stockholm syndrome. I'm like, Oh, shut up. Like I, I can love who I want. Um, but I don't know. We just, he's always been supportive of me as a writer. He like jokes about how he wishes this hadn't been my first book. Um, but, but he's happy that I have success. And I mean, it's, it's head spinning for him that any of this happened. I mean, He also jokes about how he's like well you know it was one thing when you had a book like that was that was like wow I didn't think that was going to happen and then like you're like now there's a movie okay well it'll probably be like you know a million dollar movie and then it's like no it's got Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe (laughs) (laughs) and it's like there is no way to hide from it you know
0: so how is he preparing for that I mean there's going to be a lot of people comparing him to you know the this movie
2: i know it's been crazy too because people from like people that are pretending to be like other people will show up at my dad's door and it's really messed up like i will call them out now the daily mail has relentlessly bothered my family and like they send people they sent two people all the way from like london to, to come to arkansas and pose as like different people to talk to my parents and my mom is like – I joke about my mom is media trained now because she just is like, no. Like she just shuts the door on people. Um, but it's been weird. I mean, everywhere he goes, people are like, oh, do you agree with your son or not? Mm-hmm. And that's messy because he, he'll he lose his church if he says, like, I'm 100% behind Garrett. And um, I don't know. It's a messy place to be.
0: But it's lovely that you guys – keep trying and trying and talking and hashing it out and fighting and yeah. coming back together. I mean, it is kind of lovely.
2: Well, it's, it's meaningful. That, that to me is the and the main reason why I continue to go back to it. Like, it's like I learn more about myself when I talk to my father and disagree with him than I do in any therapy session. <laughs> you know, like, I'm just like you, you learn what your defenses are. you learn, you learn, how to, despite years of like conditioning yourself to believe a certain way, how to actually challenge that in a fruitful way. Um, And that's what I mean when I say when you're talking to somebody who's actually willing to listen, it's such a different experience.
0: If the Daily Mail is there now, but this is nothing compared to when this movie comes out, when it, I mean, I've heard that it's absolutely incredible. There's all I mean everyone's going to get Oscars, everything's going to happen. Are you worried about this relationship? I mean that this is going to freak him out completely and
2: Yeah, you're like you're speaking to all of my anxieties. <laughs> people are going to be triggered a huge amount. I mean like I've I've had a lot of people email me from the book and like and it's it, and the trailer itself has caused a lot of people to be like Oh my God, I can't see this everywhere. Like, it's too much. You know, it's, it is a very, for a lot of people who went through it, it's very triggering and it's very intense. And so, no matter what happens, no matter how nuanced Russell Crowe's performance is, and he is my dad, like, it's actually distracting to watch it because oh, I'm like, goodness. that is, actually, that it's like so <laughs> weird. Like, every mannerism is the same. It's crazy. Like I got, you know, people are like all predicting Nicole's performance, but I'm like, you just wait until you see Russell because it's also like I think people are not recognizing yet that it's an insane performance. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I I think that no matter what, people are going to hate my dad. Like there's just gonna be a certain number of people who are gonna be like, I absolutely hate that man. Even though mm-hmm. the performance is very nuanced and actually like shows a change happening in his life. Um I think people are just going to walk away with that feeling. And Joel never made it <clears throat> feel like, that. you know, he never, from the beginning, he was like, I'm going to meet your parents. I want to understand all of this world. He came to have barbecue with me and my dad and mom. And, um, and, and so he was very much like, we're not going to paint villains here because I want to show what really happened. But no matter what, there's going to be some of that.
0: Have you talked to your dad about that?
2: Yeah. I think he'll, He'll go into crusade mode. Like it'll be like it'll be like, well, it's tough being a Christian, you know. I I think that's what's going to get him through, and that's with me.
0: But I mean, because that's the, the the very special thing about your story. I mean, I'll, everyone who shares stories of, of these type of things that you've been through is is incredible and very brave. But the special thing about your story is that. Your family is is in general great. I mean, the three of you are are, are I mean, it's something you did this together. I mean, I, I'm sorry if, if I'm using the long, wrong language, but sort of brainwashed to get into this um <laughs> yeah. um gay conversion therapy. But but underneath it, everyone thought this was the right way to go. Not
2: to, that's what makes and, and
0: not to lose you, and for you not to lose them.
2: Well, it's what made it, it's what makes us bond now because, you know, we'll, mom will find every comment that's ever been made on the internet about her. I promise you she'll find it. And it's like, terror. I'm like, mom, please do not read to the mom, but she'll find everything. Um, she stays at home all day. So she like, she does this a lot. Um, and we'll joke about how they'll be like, oh, those parents are the worst ever. And we'll just sort of joke about it because to us, we've not only survived conversion therapy together in many ways because it, it, it affected all of us. Um, we also have survived, like, being from the South and then being in the spotlight in a major way because there are so many stereotypes about the South, many of them kind of true. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, the nuance is lost no matter what, even if there are some truer stereotypes and i you know i can go back with people who have survived the south growing up in small towns and being queer or whatever and we always get along so much more than somebody who's lived a privileged life because we're just like oh i get it like this is how you this is how you view the world we're very cynical but like in a fun way you know we we know how to work the system because we know both languages um, and, and so my parents and I bond over that a lot. We're like, oh, can you believe these northerners that don't understand why anyone would do this to a kid? You know, it's like, it's like half of the town would have done it. <laughs>
0: has has you, Have your parents, especially your father, I guess, made any sort of changes in how they feel about homosexuality? Mm. And I think dad, sexuality I think dad, in general?
2: Dad's <laughs> attitude towards queer people has changed
0: yeah
2: immensely um I think that you know at one point I went home and I saw this like lesbian couple in this church and I was like what is going on why are you here You know, but um they did end up leaving but they stayed for like a couple of months and at one point they asked me my dad what he thought about homosexuality in a private you know session and he said well I don't I don't I still don't agree with homosexuality, but uh, but I invite you into my church and blah. And they were like, "Well, thanks, but no thanks." Mm-hmm. But it was a very different attitude from like, "We're going to cure you now, and you're evil." It, I think he. For him, had, it was a step. Yeah, and it's been he's had so much more exposure to queer people since you know I've come out and, and in my own terms and and been a more public figure. So I think that he. He's, like, starting to get used to it. And I think bigotry fades away whenever you're around people that are different yeah. from you.
0: And what about these places like Love in Action? Is gay conversion therapy still going on? and, and-
2: still thriving, unfortunately. Love in Action shut down. Exodus International, which was the big umbrella group that ran all of these places, that shut down. But um, I still get emails from people who are in it and, like, they're, most of them have gone underground since a lot of the bad presses happened, but they're in every state in the U.S. When I went on my tour through um, Germany, like people were like, oh, yeah, there are three here in this town. Like, I mean, there was crazy. You just wouldn't expect it to be everywhere, but it kind of is. And um, even – where was I? Oh, at one point I was in Zurich, and someone was like, oh, yeah, there's one – around here. And I was like, that's crazy. You know, you just don't think of it being all over the place, but it is. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, that's, that's, and are you worried that with this new administration and we are that, that it won't fade I mean, that they grow even stronger or?
2: I'm not just worried. I have evidence that they're planning to do it. I mean, they're in the, their, um, freedom Alliance group or whatever that just came out. Um, they had a big, session not too long ago and and they
0: uh when you say they who do
2: they as in the administration itself like mike pence was there and a lot of other people um they they basically were saying well we're gonna we're gonna make sure that parents still have the right to choose the therapy that they seem see fit for their children and that's (laughs) code for keep conversion therapy um and that, that was in the Republican platform, which I wrote about for Time magazine a couple of years ago, where I was like, hey, it's right there in your face in the Republican platform. It says parents should have the right to choose. And, um, and you know, no one was listening, <laughs> but hopefully they are now. <laughs>
0: well, with your book and your film, one will definitely help um, – you know, hopefully people will listen and, and, yeah. uh, but I have one more question before I let you go. And that's the casting of Nicole Kidman as your mom. Yes. How's that?
2: I mean, it's epic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'd say epic is a good word.
2: I mean, my mom, my mom loves being like immortalized in film as Nicole Kidman. Of course, that's wonderful. Wouldn't? <laughs> but, um, aside from that, you know, it was It's cool because I've always been a Nicole fan. Um, You know, the gays love Nicole. And, uh, (laughs) like, ever since I saw her in Birth, and uh, it's one of my favorite movies. And then I I also really love um, Eyes Wide Shut. I'm a big Kubrick fan. So, you know, she's been a legend in my eyes for a long time. So it was very cool to, like, to be able to say, like, Nicole Kidman is playing my mom,
0: and your mom seems like quite of a legend in her time.
2: So oh, she so. is. I mean, actually, mom is going to upstage Nicole. It's just bound to happen. <laughs> uh, if they, if you ever get them together, which this is top secret, but you know, there will be a few events where they are together, and um, mom is going to bring it. You know, she's <laughs> she's like, I I'm not going to hog the whole. Thing. Spotlight. Um, Good for Yeah.
0: I haven't mentioned that Lucas Hedges is playing you. He's not Australian, but he's magnificent.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he is. He's wonderful. I mean, we actually—this is how I knew he was right for the part. Like, we we met before he agreed to do the part um, in uh, near like the Brooklyn Bridge area, and we walked around, and he was just like tell me all about your life, like blah, blah, blah. And so we actually went to this church and I explained the stations of the cross to him on the Catholic church. And he was just like, wow, I didn't know any of that. And then we sat in his parents' apartment for like two hours and talked about the the part. And he showed me his copy of my book that was completely marked up on every page. I was just like, okay, this is the right one.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for taking so much time to talk to yeah. me, and I'm I really am thrilled about both you know the success of your book and and the movie that I think is so important precisely in this moment.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's weird that it's hitting on two things: conversion therapy, but then also like that you know this time in which we don't understand the Trump voter, and exactly. it's like oh, no, I mean you go. <laughs> yeah,
0: and and I think you and your family with baby steps of course um are doing something that maybe many of us should be trying harder to do and not i mean i don't know if i could manage to not just hang up that phone and not call for a long time
2: yeah i know <laughs> well, i'm stubborn do. though i'm Good. i, I <laughs> like i like being a stick in the mud
0: <laughs> well thank you so much for this i really appreciate it
2: yeah it's been wonderful talking with you
0: Thank you very much to Garrett Conley. His memoir is Boy Erased, and the movie premieres in the U.S. on November 2nd. You can see it in other territories this winter and catch it at the Stockholm Film Festival this November. And thank you so much to Alicia Lutz, and happy Halloween to all of you. This show was edited by Katrin Lundell and Tom Hansen. My name is Christina Jerling biro See you next time.